Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution by speaking with business executives and thought leaders who are changing how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is one of our monthly digital all-stars, Tony Apoff, who is CEO of Thomas. And Thomas is a company that's now deeply involved in industrial marketplaces, helping them understand data, how it can be used, what's happening across these industries, and has become quite a force in the market between the buyers and sellers of industrial products. Tony, welcome back to Cloud Wars Live, and thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks, Bob. Always enjoy our conversations. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, geez, I know uh, some of the things you've been on recently, you know, 10 billion people in the world, a number of very dynamic, wide-reaching topics coming up. And it looks like today you have uh, some things to talk about with around the big field of change management and how that pulls together a lot of pretty powerful threads that have been on your mind lately. Yeah, you know, Bob, you and I've had similar conversations before, but if you think about the concept of change management, which is not a new terminology, historically, we've applied that in environments where there was a focus set of change initiatives that were prescribed and executed over a fixed period of time. And then the result, as you hoped, there was some systemic ongoing change that was developed in the business. And I think what's starting to happen, and we can see this in most every industry or business in the world, we've got this unique lens into the industrial and manufacturing markets where we're seeing it taking place. But if you think about the three core elements, right? You've got super advanced technology that's, that's moving in and just you know, uh, advancing at a remarkable rate. You've got globalization that's happening at also a very advanced rate. We can see the turbulence that that causes at various times around the world. And then the third piece I think is probably less talked about, but I think equally powerful, is we have a truly multi-generational workforce for actually the first time it's ever happened, where you have a generation the same size as the baby boom generation, the largest generation previously ever created, in the workforce at the exact same time. So, my thesis, if you will, from analyzing all this, and we can see this in some of our data that we track as well, is that we've gone from change management to just management that is in a perpetual state of change. And, and I would argue, Bob, and, and I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, that this is having a profound impact on business leaders today. And, and I, I wouldn't mind breaking the conversation down in a, into a series of, of areas, but just be curious on, on your thoughts, because you've chronicled some of this yourself. Well, Tony, that, that's wild. I think, uh, you know, today there's that, that need, while we feel sometimes the need to pursue, you know, perfect innovation, because it's, there's so much data in the world. Well, if we just look at things properly, we can get the perfect data, perfect analysis, know exactly what's going on. But that's it's almost like a Heisenberg principle in there, where the closer you try to find that, the more it lurches away from us. So I think your idea there about change management, uh, you know, I, maybe it's a little like an, the old electric typewriter. No, wait, I'm going back too far. How about a wired telephone, you know, well, uh, or a mobile phone? Well, mobile as opposed to what? So change is more constant, more rapid, more profound today than ever. So I think you're onto something, Tony. And how would you break that out? Well, you know, it's interesting. And if you think about this, um, it, it, we, the average person can relate to this in their own business because every business is going through a, a cycle. But if you want to give it a bit of a framework, I might look at it, people in organizational, 
right? What, what does it mean as a result of these dynamics about, you know, how are you running a company today? And how do you think about the people that you recruit, attract, retain, and develop? And then what structures do you put them in, both physical structures, but then also organizational structures? And how does that work today? Um, I think it has profound implications for the products and services that not only do we buy, to manage our companies today, and there's a, a new one out every day and the nature of how do you manage all that, but also it's opening the doors for the types of products and services that we can now produce, right? So the, the enabling technology around some of these things is really remarkable, and I've got some examples to share with you there. Um, the processes with which we manage our business, which I, I define as something separate and, and distinct from the, the uh, organizational structure and the people. In other words, what, what, what are the frameworks? What are the systems? What are the philosophies we use to manage a business today? Because if we agree in the thesis that all these fundamental things are changing, then we have to constantly be optimizing, right? To, to use the digital marketing phraseology there. Uh, you know, these processes with, with which we run the business. And then the last one I wouldn't mind touching on if we have time is self-management. Um, something that probably doesn't get talked about enough. I mean, it is not for the faint of heart to run a company today of any size. And, and not because there isn't an opportunity, not because there isn't a great way to make a living, but the, the need to get context and perspective and a point of view and understand what's actually happening at any point in time is getting harder to do. And I would, I would offer the, the perspective that the emotional stamina required to run a business today is infinitely more difficult uh, or more trying than it was even 10 years ago. And so I think, you know, you wrap up all those things. If we could guide the conversation into those areas, I think it might be kind of interesting. Sure, Tony, let me just ask you to go back to what you said just a second ago about this the notion of stamina. Because if, if it applies for the leaders of companies, perhaps most intensely there, but it's gotta be true then throughout the organization. Could you talk a little bit about that and how do you get beyond that? Yeah, 100% accurate, Bob. So, so and let's, let's see if we can you know, unpack this a little bit, right? So with the pace of change um, comes uh, new competition, renewed competition, um, you know, customers that move with you, customers that move away from you, all those things are happening faster than they happened before. So things that might have, you know, and it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true, right? Things that might have taken a cycle of five years before are now maybe two and a half or two years, you know, it, everything's getting compressed. So as a result of that, we're having to make decisions on imperfect data. We're not going to have 100% fidelity on the data that we have to make decisions anymore. And, and I know many professionals that operate in the business information industries that I operate in are thrilled if they could have 60 to 75% fidelity mm -hmm. of data on a, on a decision that they need to make. It could be around a new product or a customer dynamic or you know, a, a competitive issue that they're, that they're wrestling with there. As you bring this to the, the personal too, what, what this is creating in a lot of companies, and to your exact point, whether it's at the senior leadership of the company or whether it's in the rank and file of a company, right? A, those things are flattening. Traditional hierarchies are starting to go away as we use metrics and systems to manage, which adds more value to, for you to sit astride those systems, whether you're, uh, you know, quote unquote, an employee or a manager or a senior executive. But what's also true is given this pace of change and given the velocity that things are moving is you have to be comfortable with ambiguity today. 
you have to be comfortable that <clears throat> you may not get everything right every day. And it's not an era for perfectionists, uh, certainly not in, in business today. <clears throat> There's an adage, Bob, that you would know pretty well that's used in the Silicon Valley. I don't know how many of your, your listeners would be familiar with it, but it's a phrase called let fires burn. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's the, the, um, the strength of will required to say, I know that's a problem. I'm going to let that fire burn as long as I can make the decision that it's not a fire that's about to burn down the house. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, would, I would differentiate the two. But it's having that, um, and I'll use the term emotional stamina, to be able to deal with that day in and day out and keep going forward. And I, and I emphasize this, what I'm pointing out is nothing new. It sounds like a Rudyard Kipling uh, quote, but the fact of the matter is it's, it's happening faster. And I would argue that it's happening at all levels of organizations today. And it, and it could, in the wrong hands, create frustration or anxiety or, or, or challenge and concern. I think in the right hands, it can be a stimulus to, to coalesce an organization and, and give it uh, the opportunity it needs to, uh, to thrive. Yeah, Tony, t uh, just two things about the organizational, or the, the, the nature of organizational structures as you described them in an earlier conversation today with one of your fellow digital all-stars, Sean Amirati. We were talking about how, uh, certainly among the tech companies, and there's probably a parallel into other industries if you take engineering expertise out and you know plug in the appropriate one, and maybe it's engineering in some of the others as well, certainly in the industrial fields where Thomas operates, but uh, salespeople, the sort of traditional, as Sean described them, the sort of back-slapping salespeople who've known somebody for 10 years, knows all the kids' names and birthdays, always takes your favorite rock concert, are being displaced by subject matter experts who can get in and really deliver needs because those time cycles you described are so much shorter. So I think that that's, that's clearly a big one. And on the other hand, you know, you've got companies jumping industries or at least moving over to the far boundaries of industries that they haven't before. So nothing static, nothing staying the same. And this sort of constant turnover here gives people inside organizations, I think the opportunity to either be frightened or uncertain, do we know where we're headed? Gee, things are changing faster and what's going on? Or based on the emotional stamina that leaders and others in the organization can bring to it, then to turn that potential anxiety into something powerful of confidence and optimism toward the future. So I think this big idea that you're on here about where change management just becomes everyday management is quite powerful. Yeah, in, and I love Sean's example of sales. Um, you know, in essence, what he's, he's pointing out is that entire job functions, right, are being redefined. And you and I have seen, you know, this partly in technology, we've certainly seen it in digital marketing, that the idea of what a sales rep did to add value started to shift and change. First off, in the average purchase process in the industrial market today, the buyer is upwards of 70% of the way through the process before they engage with a sales rep. So the day of good old Tony taking you out for a steak once a month and all that kind of stuff is giving way to something else. The, the real issue then is how as a sales rep could I add value in that 70% if they aren't meeting with me? And I think it comes down to a deceptively simple concept of relevance. 
is how do I stay relevant with you as a prospective buyer? Now that could be likely through marketing during that 70% and not as in a personal touch, but I have to be pretty in sync with the jobs to be done that you're working through and understand what you really need to help you solve some of those problems so that when I get the opportunity to engage with you, it is not a cold call, it's a warm call. Now, I made that just sound really easy and simple and very obvious. Boy, imagine you're a 20 year sales veteran and you've hit your quota for years and years and years over the last five or six years, maybe things are getting a little wobbly and you, know, you, you might be interviewing for new jobs and your Rolodex isn't gonna get you into that job anymore. And your visit to the annual trade show and the fact that you know good old so-and-so and all these people, that's a pretty radical change. And so I think Sean's spot on. And I think that's just the beginning of the job functions that are going to get redefined. I would think in the industrial marketplace, a couple of data points I'll, I'll, I'll throw your way. Um, we track demand across ThomasNet for um, you know, 72,000 different categories every two seconds. Uh, a buyer is select, uh, selecting a product or a supplier for a product or service. One of the things that we've been looking at very carefully is the, the rampant adoption and growth of advanced robotics and automation systems on the factory floor. Nothing new about that. That's been happening for 25 or 30 years now. But if you, if you kind of un, um, you know, uh, uncover the numbers and try to understand what's really underneath them, just in the last seven years, there's been nearly 200,000 robots purchased in US manufacturing. This is just in the United States, and that's in the last seven years. And most of that, uh, the majority has, has been in either the automotive or the semiconductor marketplace, and then there's a long tail of other markets that fit into that. Now, yeah, I wanna talk about the, the redefinition of work in this context, Bob. In that same seven years, there's been 1.3 million new jobs created in American manufacturing. So the myth-busting nature of this is really intriguing, right? So you think to yourself, well, wait a second. We're replacing people with automation. That's great. Let's move on. But that's not actually what's happening. And I think it cuts to perhaps some of the you know, conversation you and Sean might have been having. You know, those aren't white-collar jobs. Those aren't blue collar jobs, as you and I have touched on before. These are some sort of new collar, if I can use that buzzwordy term. Something is really unique that's happening here. They're not the same job that it was before. And, and I think um, this is both very exciting, and I think it's, it's, um, it, it says so much about the growth and innovation of these industries and where they could go. But cutting back to where we started from, it's, um, it's not for the faint of heart. These are tough, challenging things. It's all well and good to say, well, I could create a whole series of new jobs. I may be running a company that exists with the majority of people that I don't know if I can train them into those new jobs. I don't know that they're going to make that segue into those new jobs. And I think therein is part of the rub that a lot of business leaders are facing today. And Tony, if I, if I could, there's you know, another common buzzword that, that gets kicked around a lot these days. And despite the triteness of the term itself, the phenomenon's 100% real of digital transformation and so much, you know, when I talk to folks about this, I say that really the hub of it isn't at all technology. It's that you've, companies have to put their customers at the center of everything. And in this time of intense change and everything's flipping around and potential uncertainty, those companies that are able to build their futures and their new, as you've described it, their people, their products, their processes around 
customer orientation are going to have the best chance. If they don't do that, I think it's going to be an endless cycle of, you know, dog chasing its tail or, you know, in another way, uh, just a, a slow glide into irrelevance or maybe not so slow. Uh, you talked about that earlier, that the need to be relevant as the market moves at incredible speeds, sometimes with lurches that cannot be anticipated. Well, and I think, Bob, you know, sticking on this, this topic of relevance for a minute, if you go back to the, um, the, the stat in the industrial purchase process of 70% before they engage with a, a sales rep, you and I both know it's, it's even higher than that in, in areas of business technology and some other B2B markets. You know, we've been starting to refer to that moment in time as the relevance firewall. Mm -hmm. that this is that moment that if you haven't created some value and relevance, right, as a brand, as a company, as an offering, that you are helping to solve the jobs to be done for that prospective buyer, you're not going to get through behind the firewall, period. End of story. This isn't a matter of cold calling or going to a trade show or any of the traditional tried and true uh, methodologies that we've used before. And um, I, I think you're I think you're on to something as you describe some of these changes in some of these, these shifts. And I think in, inside the context of digital transformation, I think one of the other things that, that I talk to a lot of groups about is the nature of engaging with prospects and customers is changing beyond simply the digital component. So I'll, I'll, I'll be explicit about that. Um, a question I ask to groups that I speak in front of where there's marketers and senior executives in the room is I will say just as a show of hands, how many people have changed their sales process to sell the way that your prospects and customers now buy? And there's an awkward moment of probably upwards of 10 seconds and then everyone starts laughing and no one raises their hand, <laughs> right? And, and I'm, I'm kind of having fun yeah. with the question, but... Yeah. You are, you are identifying the organizing around the customer, which I think we throw these, not you and I, but we as an industry throw these terms around as though they're really simple and obvious, but the actual changes you need to make to really identify how does my prospective customer buy and how do I organize my sales around their needs and wants and process for buying, not just the way that I choose to sell, because I'd love it, trust me. Can you imagine how nice it would be to be able to run a company that all of your customers would simply buy the way you choose to sell? Mm -hmm. um, but that's a, big, that's a big shift. Yeah, and so Tony, you talked about these remarkable numbers over the last seven years that Thomas and ThomasNet have put together. 200,000 robots purchased for manufacturing in the US at the same time, 1.3 million jobs. So this emotional stamina that, stamina that you described at a time of unprecedented change all these things work along. You start to think you got to fix on what's going on. And then from the outside or from up above, boom, these other things come in like AI yeah. or additive manufacturing that you've described, which again, you know, you're driving at 65 on the highway and a bear runs across the lane. You know, what, what do you do? How do you deal with these things? And you better find a way to do it, right? Because uh, they're not going away. And not only are they not going away, but they're going to have, again, one of those uh, disproportionately huge impacts on change. You're, you're spot on, Bob. You know, let's, let's highlight additive manufacturing. And you and I have touched on this before. Some people use the terminology of 3D printing. It, it's fundamentally the exact same thing. 
this is not necessarily all that new of a technology. And it's a great example of the year of becoming the decade of, you know, we, we tend to overestimate the speed with which a new technology will have an impact, but underestimate the additional impact of that technology over time. Additive manufacturing would be a perfect example of that. It's been around for the better part of 20 plus years. Um, boy, is it a technology whose time has come though. So if we look at the growth of additive manufacturing by demand on the ThomasNet platform, it's up 30% year on year and last year it was up over 50%. So companies are adopting additive manufacturing at really an extraordinary rate. But also now we're starting to see these just remarkable breakthroughs, right? So there was recently a, um, a bid that was won by a company to build 3D um, printed parts in space based on the weightless nature of that and the delicacy of it. And it, and it was a, it was a you know, multi-hundred million dollar uh, award granted. We're seeing some remarkable innovations in the medical device category where, you know, these are environments where, you know, the, the, the one example that I thought was really kind of remarkable, think of the advances of, of a hearing aid. Well, historically, that's been a product that it's got multiple pieces that you have to fit together, which by definition, but pardon me, by definition is going to make it difficult to manufacture. And there has to be some sort of process for fitting that together. And, and it adds to the size of it. Additive manufacturing has completely revolutionized that industry where those can be crafted without seams and screws and other elements to them. And it's a small example, but if you start to then plot that in the medical device industry, it literally is opening up you know, remarkable new advances. Now, imagine, going back to our point, you were running a company that scoffed at additive manufacturing a few years ago, and you didn't time this right. And you know, these are big markets, small worlds, right? You're one of a handful of manufacturers that's operating in the medical device you know, uh, marketplace at scale. You have a competitor that made that investment, you didn't. And now that competitor, as you and I have touched on before, is taking that, that, that uh, advanced technology and they're moving away from you faster. So it's not just that they have it and you don't. They're now moving away from you faster and the learning curve of that and the new customer generation engine of that is very, very difficult to combat. So that, that to me is a great example. And there's, there's a ton more in the industrial marketplace, but that, that one's a real game changer. Wow, Tony, I was thinking about uh, something I'd seen recently involving additive manufacturing. It had to do with, uh, in the medical device field broadly, but uh, dental implants or yeah. you know, different sort of uh, products that dentists would use you know, to, I don't know, what are they called, crowns or things like that. Yeah. If you think about it from the ultimate customer's perspective, you go in once, they have some tests, they put that, that uh, you know, medieval torture device in your mouth with the purple goo that has this horrible smell. And I know we'll be telling kids about it or younger people and not very disinfused. <laughs> what are you talking about? How could it, all you have to do is go in, they take an image, this thing zaps it out. It's not like six weeks off to some other company on the other side of the world. Yeah. So I, I think when we look at some of this stuff and, and again, you know, hindsight in some ways can be a fantastic tool, but your larger point is these things that are coming up have to find a place in that emotional stamina, the emotional workout that leaders go through every day and say, maybe this isn't going to hit today, tomorrow, next quarter, next year, but this is going to be a game changer, a game definer. And it also could be the sort of thing that if we miss, you know, we're not just at a disadvantage. We are in very serious trouble. So how do you 
advise leaders to be prepared for this and where do they place their bets? You know, I, I, I think there's a series of things that leaders can do. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the first is going to sound overly simplistic, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll build on it. As, as I think for all of us, we have to stay informed and curious. We have to understand, you know, what, what's new out there? What's going on? What are people doing? And, I, you know, I'll stick with additive manufacturing for, for, uh, for a second. Um, you know, there's now companies that are taking additive manufacturing into the next level and creating entirely new business models. So they're taking an additive manufacturing machine and installing it into a customer's building, and they're doing manufacturing as a service, right? So it's an entirely new business model. The concept of what they're doing isn't new. They're manufacturing a, a spec product on behalf of a customer, but now it's enabling all new business models, right? So I, I think, you know, first off, really staying curious about your industry and keeping your ear to the ground of either new technologies, um, new implementations. Um, we recommend to companies, you know, uh, develop a new technology team at your company. It doesn't have to be full-time jobs for any of them, but you should have a group of people that spend a percentage of their time evaluating and understanding and looking at this dynamic of new technology. No difference than if you had a business development focus. Again, I think for a smaller company, this isn't a full-time role for any one person. For a big company, obviously, they have research and development teams, they have big tech teams and those types of things. But even for smaller companies, you've gotta spend, you know, let your curiosity be a bit of a guide, you know, understand what competitors are doing, what are people, you know, uh, doing with new technology, and then dedicate some time, not only yourself, but people around you free up some of their time to be able to evaluate some of these new technologies and then find a way to liberate enough of some budget where you can start to do some experimentation. And again, these, these are all in ratio. So a huge company obviously is able to spend a lot of money on these things, but some of these things aren't that expensive. You know, one of the, one of the really remarkable things about technology and, and you and I have been, you know, in, in the technology related markets for, you know, 25, nearly 30 years. So we've seen these cycles before. What is consistent is it gets cheaper, faster, better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I think of on-premise software for financial services, you know, that was a multi-million dollar kind of uh, slow moving, you know, lots of investment and lots of after, you know, sale and, you know, maintenance, all that kind of stuff. Today, that process is not nearly as expensive and we can get a new system up and running in, in, in literally a matter of days where it used to take months, if not all the way into a, a full year for that. The same is true in some of the industrial markets with new technologies. Now, granted, you're not going to go out and, and buy a $5 million piece of capital equipment and call that a cheaper, faster, better. But there are things that we recommend to companies start to experiment in your marketplace. And some ways you might do that is through contract manufacturing. So an example that, you know, contract manufacturing is rising very quickly. Contract engineering is rising very quickly. In many cases, what that is, is companies of all size that, that say, I'm not ready to full on step into that space yet, but I want to give it a go. I want to try it. I want to do some experimentation. So there's ways to do this. So I think first step is, look, if you've lost your curiosity and passion for the industry, you know, have a talk with yourself in the mirror and you might want to consider calling up private equity and deciding to get out. But, but putting that aside, I think dedicating a, a strategic framework, and it doesn't have to be fancy, but saying, hey, 
are we keeping pace with new technologies? Are we keeping pace with global opportunities? And if not, how do we start to explore and look at those? And then within budgetary parameters, start to experiment. And I, and I note the, the small to medium, again, larger companies do, do all kinds of different things that, uh, that sometimes the larger budgets will enable, but the same thought process applies. It could be through contract manufacturing or contract engineering that you evaluate some of these the other thing that's happening in the industrial market is something that, uh, that you and I know well from the business technology arena, which are the equivalent of VARs, but they're systems integrators in the industrial marketplace. So you can get access to not only these advanced automation and robotics systems, but companies that can be very agile and nimble at coming in and helping you understand how to unlock the value of these things. And then depending on your budgets, do a crawl, walk, run strategy. You know, you don't have to bet the company on some of these things, you know, that, that maybe years ago, Bob, you, you, you kind of did, yeah. right? If you really wanted to own the future, you were going to have to really make a big bet. Yeah. Tony, good. terrific advice on a lot of fronts there. And I think that the, the degree to which in industrial markets or any others that those new product innovation, new opportunity teams can uh, focus their time out at customer locations or in partnership with customers to see, you know, is this playing in the real world or am I distorted in my thinking a little based on where my individual company has been? It doesn't mean that it was wrong. It just means it's, uh, you know, as you talk about the rear view mirror does not always, uh, you know, rarely points the way into the future yeah. for you. And Tony, your, your point there too about, you know, uh, stay informed and curious, that's, that's fantastic. Um, one of your other uh, digital all-star colleagues here, Chris Lockhead, recently talked about a book from uh, Tom Siebel, who had founded the big CRM yep. company that, yep. uh, that he, he later sold to Oracle. He's got a book out now, and it's really, um, he's running an AI company, and he said it is a CXO's job not just to understand sort of broadly slash vaguely what AI can do and some of these digital technology terms. You've got to understand it as well as you should be able to understand a lot of financial metrics, not every yeah. detail like the CFO, but leaders of today and into the future, you want to be leaders in the digital economy, you've got to understand the digital dynamics. And it sounds like this advice you're offering to people in this whole scheme of change management becoming slash just straight management. Um, I, I think, you know, it's, that's, that's extremely valuable. They're the things informed, curious, and engaged. Yeah. I, I think the other thing I would, I would um, weave in here, and, and perhaps it came up in the conversation with Chris, and, and I'll look to get Tom Siebel's new book. I'm a huge fan, obviously wildly successful guy, but he's, he's a deep, deep thinker as well. Um, I, I think what's happening is through the use of much of this technology that, that we've touched on, but also you know, advanced ERP systems, artificial intelligence, all the different things that we're seeing starting to implement across business, but certainly we're seeing this in the industrial marketplace. I think it's starting to change the nature of what we think of as quote unquote management. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I'm running a company where um, the, the, the fundamental strategic framework is pretty well understood, we understand what's true north, we understand what we make and, and provide for customers, we understand the value proposition, you have specialists that understand their roles. If we're distributing real-time data to those folks that have proximity to the applications they're deploying, right, whether they're making a product, serving customers, whatever it is, 
Now you have to ask yourself, well, what does management do? Right? Because even though it sounds trite to say, you and I both know an enormous number of companies where managers wander around telling other people what to do, which is a complete 100% waste of time today. It's just, it, you might as well be lighting dollar bills on fire. So I don't know if you and Chris got into that as a related nature of the conversation you had, but I'm fascinated with where management is going and the idea of flattening organizations. Not that you don't have a, a reasonable structure and, and management positions. I'm not saying that, but the gap between the, the highest title and the lowest title should be really small today. And, and I think, you know, everybody's a doer. Everybody has access to the data and information. Everybody understands the objectives of the company. And I'm, I'm a bit overstating or idealizing that, but I, I really think, Bob, it, it, that we have the ability to go there now. I think some companies are struggling either culturally or structurally to, to get to that, that model, and they're still deploying middle managers to line people up every day and, okay, Tony, this is, you know, between nine and 10, this is what you do. How'd you do? Let me check your list, you know. And, and I'm, I'm exaggerating to make the point, but there still is some of that happening. Yeah, Tony, if I could offer a couple things about that one uh, over at SAP, which is certainly a, a big player in the software field in, in industrial markets has yeah. been for a long time. Uh, companies growing quickly, they're doing well, but one of the promises that CEO Bill McDermott has made to Wall Street is uh, they're going to increase their profitability. And he said that one of the points of that is to show that we are aligned and structured for the new world, not for the past world. So Mc, McDermott has come out and very bluntly said, you know, ex, with very few exceptions in our company, we will have people who make software and people who sell software. And so, you know, this is a this is a company with a hundred, you know, sixty billion dollar market cap. You know, people all over the world, and he's tracking to that point that you're making—that the, the middle management and that inefficiency of, let me ask you what you're doing, then I'll write that down and I'll go tell somebody else. It, it's kind of nuts, and um, I think, you know, in a way, this shift into the future, this customer-centered part of the world. Uh, I think, again, you know, Microsoft has done such a great job with this, that often the fire of innovation and the thing that guides Microsoft's product development isn't so much, you know, their egghead sitting inside the company. It is what is going on out of there at the customer locations. And it yeah. really becomes that process of co-creation, co-development, co-innovation with them. So, you know, how can you get out there and feel the things that are happening at the point of the decision-making by the customer? Yeah. It, it, first off, I, I, I'll, I'll study up on and, and may reach out to you for a little bit more on some of the, the stuff that Bill's doing. A huge fan of, of SAP and, and particularly his leadership. We use a phrase here that BAU should get cheaper every year and BAU is business as usual. And, you know, and that's not a ruthless sense of anti-people. That's a sense that you should be using systems and those systems should get better throughput, enable more people that, that you know, you shouldn't have to throw more people at the issue. You should be able to put new people in positions or new innovations to grow new revenues as opposed to just business as usual. And, I, I'm, I look forward to uh, to learning more about you know where he's he's going with uh, with some of that, and I, I think that's um, 
that's a big shift for a lot of companies. I mean, I can't even imagine for a company the size and complexity of SAP how to start to wrap your head around that. But I think it, it does begin with the idea of, do we have the enabling systems that are allowing people to self-actualize? And I, I don't mean to get buzzwordy about it, but they can do their jobs. And I don't have to call up and say, hey, Tony, you know, let me take you through what you did this morning and see how you did on it. I, I know. And you know, simple example of this, we have about, uh, gosh, just under 100 independent sales reps that work for Thomas. Um, we call them certified Thomas partners. And, and uh, these are really intelligent folks, have extraordinary relationships. And, and we work a lot to enable them and just help support them and their sales efforts out there. One of the things that we've done over the last few months is completely reimagined our Salesforce instance, our order entry system, our, our book to cash systems, new financial systems from stem to stern. And we did it by building around the customer. So we did a fair amount of analysis of what, what's changing within our customer set? How does our customer buy? How can we do this in a way that's easier and more simple to do? A part of this will over time, not yet released, be a series of very simple monthly push dashboards for these sales reps. So they don't have to go into the system and determine how they're doing. They don't have to go into the system and see how they're performing against perhaps a rep in a similar size city, you know, in another part of the country. They'll be able to get this and it's going to enable them. And, and, you know, let them take action on that data to, to hire a bunch of people to either pat them on the back or yell at them if the not if the numbers aren't what we, what we want to see, or if they're great and we want to congratulate them, that doesn't make sense in business anymore. And I think, um, I, I think again, this, these systems have been around for a while. I wonder if what you and I are describing is we're starting, maybe it went through the Gartner hype cycle and we're starting to, to get to the, uh, what is it, plateau of productivity, or I can't remember what that, uh, the, the positive <laughs> stage is. Maybe that's what you and I are defining is, is a lot of these systems are within reach financially for companies, you know, companies of all size, but maybe our understanding of how to deploy these systems to benefit, you know, whoever it is in our ecosystem, partners or employees or, or whoever, maybe that's what's really starting to accelerate here. Yeah. And, and Tony, I think um, sort of closing the loop on this a little bit, one of the points that I, I believe you and I've talked about before, but it, uh, I think it goes to the heart of, Many of the great points you've made today about change management, organizational structure, people's own expectations of themselves, and especially the customer-centric nature of business that's yeah. now unfolding. And that is, I think that in some ways, you know, language matters because language either reflects reality or it shapes reality. And so when companies talk about front office and back office, I think it's very dangerous ground for companies to be in today. You just described it yourself in the reorientation of your processes and ultimately your financial systems around customers, right? And this idea that there's some parts of the company that are front office. And I've always asked people, what does that mean? And I guess it means like, well, these are the people we allow to see or speak with customers, but these people in the back office, no, 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 no. Or that HR is a back office. Like what, the, you know, in the war for that's back office, finance is back office, you know, uh, customer service. So, I don't get, so I think that language of customer service or uh, of front office, back office is nuts. And I think that these different forward-looking views, a lot of which you've described here, are going to help people 
find that uh, dealing with this shift from change management to constant management of change is one that can be solved with some thought. Don't, but don't apply the things that you did the last three, four, five, ten years to the next two or three. Hey, just one quick one to your yeah. point on the power of language and, and uh, nomenclature. I, I, I've always been fascinated, and odds are you and I have riffed around on the goofy nature of front office, back office before. If you actually study it like a behavioral psychologist or organizational psychologist, one of the, the um, downsides of that clear differentiation inside of companies is that you force people to have to change language when they speak to customers. So if, if a back office function is talking to a front office person who touches a customer, they're speaking in acronyms and, and slang terms and, and perhaps even at times derogatory terminology. And they have to hope that that person's gonna translate it. It's almost like English is a second language where you've gotta now suddenly convert it to English and go communicate with somebody. Where you're really going, Bob, I think is really very powerful. If, if the systems can help enable this, then there's a common language. We, yeah. we use this language with customers. We use it with each other. It's, it's who we are. It's a part of the fabric and the culture of the company so that we don't create these kind of odd, well, I say one thing over here, but I, I say it differently over here. Because the level of mistake or just odd confusion or strangeness that the customer can feel from that interaction, they don't know what's causing it. They just know something's not right. Yeah, uh, Tony, it's like, uh, you know, exactly what you said of those, those 100 independent um, sales representatives that Thomas uses, the, the partners there, like, you know, certain things coming up and they find the system says, oh, I can't tell you this, you're, you're not an FTE, uh, whatever the acronym is for a contract, right, exactly. you're a yeah. three-letter acronym, not the right three-letter acronym. And I, I guess after a while, some people just say like, you know, blank this, you know, I, but ultimately those enough of those things build up flip side the companies that are going to win tomorrow they push that crap out of the way like yeah. they're pushing middle management bs out of the way and they are elevating to the highest level that everybody your point about self-actualizing i can't fully self-actualize unless i know what the company's doing why it's doing it how it's performing how i'm fitting in with that where i can make a difference do i get some access to the data that really matters. And can I be a person who can make a contribution that matters to customers, not to some internal you yeah. know, bean counting that goes on? I think, Bob, it's interesting. I, I, I have a thesis, I'm not, it's not ready for prime time, but I, I have a thesis that we're gonna start to redefine what we mean by self-service. If you plot the trajectory of what you're describing, and we're starting to see this in retail, is we're gonna extend these systems and connect directly to the customer and then have people who add value. So it's not pure self-service a la an Amazon, right? We're gonna to start to see these hybrid models. I can clearly see it emerging in, in the business to business markets. And, and I think ultimately, going all the way back to your comment that Sean uh, Amirati got into, that may very well be where we start to go that, that sales is more of a nurturing process mm -hmm. than it is a, open and close type of linear process the way that it used to be in, in previous days. But I, I do think a potential outcome is we're gonna have hybrid self-service models, if you will, that sounds probably a little buzzy, but you know, models where we're gonna build the systems to connect directly with customers, but we may just be using those to pull them effectively and valuably through the channels of distribution, right? And again, there's nothing new about that vision. I just think the enabling technologies are here now. And it goes back to something you said near the beginning of the conversation, which is 
um, allowing the question you ask to audiences when you're speaking is uh, how much of your process is you know mapped to the way customers want to buy as opposed yeah. to tradition, history, convenience, whatever it might be. Yeah. But yeah, that writ large is the way to go. And yeah. Tony, yeah. I wonder, you know, on this fascinating subject, do you have a, a last word, a parting thought, you know, where to go with this? You know, I think um, I think I'd touch on on you know finishing up is is the, we lightly touched on this idea of self management and and I think that's uh, it's something I really highly recommend to people. You were touching on a on a on a book by Tom Siebel that Chris recommended. I'm a huge fan of um, dedicating time every day to read. And it's, it's one of my forms of self-management. There is so much available, both inspiring, but also highly practical. Um, there's so many frameworks and systems and tools and, and ways of thinking about this that I think are really, really important for either business leaders or people who aspire to be business leaders to, to engage in and around. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the work-life balance conversation. Um, and, and not because I don't think it's an important one. I, I think we're asking the wrong question around that. I, I think it is about self-management. And it's not about how many hours do I spend working and how many hours do I spend in my personal life. I think it's about how do I, um, how do I you know, stay fresh? How do I stay curious? How do I you know, develop an emotional stamina so I don't, you know, the highs don't get too high, the lows don't get too low? There are so many tools and systems and um, resources today to help the average professional. The phenomenon of business coaching, which is just you know, blowing up over the last five to seven years, I think is an outcome of this, Bob. I think the growth of things like YPO, the growth of things like Vistage, you know, I think those are outcomes of this. We, we can turn to each other. We can, you know, we can put networks together. We can, um, you know, adopt mentors and different things. So I, I know it, it's not about technology and it's not about cloud computing, um, but I really believe in today's world that leaders need to really make sure they're putting their own oxygen mask on first mm -hmm. and they're doing the things they need to do for self-management because that way they're gonna, they're gonna have the best opportunity to serve the people in their company and to help you know, build and, and grow their, uh, their business. Well, Tony, powerful stuff as always. Um, thanks for the great thoughts on this. Thanks for bringing up a really intriguing strategic subject and, and offering uh, some really strong ideas for how to go into it. Uh, always a pleasure and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Bob, thanks very much. I'll see you next time. All right, and thanks to all of you folks for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. We hope to see you again soon.